We're going to, this morning, go over, uh, I, I like acronyms. Acronyms help me memorize things. They help me get me through college. They help me get through seminary. Uh, so if you have a bunch of stuff related to a subject uh, that is difficult to remember, and, that, and when you're a 45-year-old man, that gets more and more prone. You just have difficulty remembering things as your memory starts to go. So I like acronyms. Um, there's several different... Uh, I had someone else use SPAN. I, I've heard this before. Someone use SPAN. But I like taking naps. Uh, and I take naps. Um, but one of the words may be a little difficult, so you can also use SCAN, and we'll explain that in a minute. Um, so I have a... Actually, I have an entire course I can teach on, on uh, bibliology, on Christology. I've written a gazillion things. Uh, last year I wrote a, like a thousand page systematic theology. Um, but one of the most important things foundational to the Christian faith, to my faith, is my understanding of the scriptures. That, I, the, that the scriptures are what I can stand on. And uh, in the 1930s, the reason why we have a lot of so many Presbyterian denominations is because around the 1930s, um, what is now the mainstream piece, the PCUSA, uh, abandoned its mission, um, mission board, abandoned uh, really the gospel, uh, because before that it had really abandoned uh, its stance uh, of an inerrancy infallibility of scripture. And once that goes, fruit, everything else goes. So I really want, just an, in a nutshell, have some basic understanding of the basic attributes of scripture as an introduction to uh, bibliology. So the Bible tells us that God has not only revealed himself to us, but he has also preserved that revelation for all generations through the Bible, that which is God-breathed and able to equip uh, the man of God for every good work. And we're going to look into that verse in 2 Timothy uh, 3, 16-17 uh, a little more. Uh, furthermore, it tells us that God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his glory and excellence in 2 Peter 1, 3. In this lesson, we'll briefly learn about uh, the acronym NAPS. NAPS is necessity, authority, perspicuity, and sufficiency. Now, perspicuity, sometimes it can be hard to, what does that mean? It's hard to remember what the word is. It simply means clarity. So you could change it if you wanted to. You could go sufficiency, clarity, authority, and necessity. And I got to put that there. So if you, if you want to sort of memorize the, what are the basic attributes of scripture, you can also use scan rather than uh, naps. So we want to first start off with revelation. The re re God, God has revealed himself. The Christian faith um, is a revealed rather than a speculative religion. So as Greek philosophy, they sort of sit around and try to come up with an idea. Well, we're, you know, what's, how do we know what we know? What's the nature of reality? How should we live? They sort of they begin with man and work outward. Um, the Christian faith is a revealed religion, which is God has revealed himself to us. So before we understand what scripture is and the attributes of scripture, we need to first realize that scripture is revelation. In other words, it concerns what and who God, uh, uh, who he is, how he's what is revealed about himself, rather than what man has discovered about God. One of the slides uh, from the Christian faith is to, when you turn scripture, rather than scripture being... God's revelation to man is it's man's discovery of the work of God, which they then wrote down. And that's sort of a neo-Orthodox view of Scripture, uh, which is common in a lot of mainstream churches. So they'll believe, well, uh, man is errant, uh, man's observations can be flawed, and so Scripture is full of flaws because it's man's observation of the work of God. It's his interpretation of what God is doing. 
Um, where the biblical idea is no, uh, God is revealing himself in various ways and various times through various means. So since the idea of revelation is so critical, actually forming the very foundation of our faith, it's best that we carefully define our meaning of the term revelation in order that we avoid any misconceptions. So the word means, revelation concerns the origin and giving of truth. The Hebrew word for revelation, gala, uh, means to uncover, and the Greek word apokalyptein, which is where we get the book of Revelation um, from, to, means to unveil, are roughly identical in meaning. Although they are synonyms in their Old and New Testament, these terms convey the idea of the removal of obstacles to perception. And that's important. We're going to look at the first, why is Scripture necessary? One of the reasons why Scripture is necessary in order to be preserved is because there, is, there are obstacles. And so this revelation is going to remove um, these obstacles. Or it has the idea of stripping away of that which keeps one from seeing an object as it is. So the notion was contained, is contained in the Latin word revelare, meaning to reveal, from which we get the word English word uh, revelation is derived. Um, in other words, revelation, at the top of page 2, uh, involves disclosure rather than discovery. As it relates to Scripture, all these terms referring to divine disclosure. Okay, so now we know what revelation is. Uh, what are the basic attributes of Scripture? Why is uh, not only revelation necessary, but why do we have to have it in ink and paper? Why do we have to have it in written form? So we're going to look at three basic points. Um, first of all is to interpret natural revelation. Second is to reveal God's moral will, that is his law. And the third is uh, to reveal God's plan of salvation, that is the gospel. And fourth, to preserve um, for special, the special revelation of God. So interpret, reveal, and preserve. Um, so scripture is necessary in order to understand natural or general revelation. So um, God has revealed himself. Through the created order, as the psalmist tells us, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Psalm one, uh, excuse me, Psalm nineteen one, and the heavens declare his righteousness. Psalm fifty six. However, the created order, since the fall, is now cursed and fallen. So, without God's revelation through special revelation, we would assume that the current status of creation, uh, which is full of sickness, death, and decay was the way it was originally created. In other words, when we look at the problem of evil, why is there death? Why is there sickness? Why do people do bad things? If we just look at creation, at the created order, what would we assume is, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it always has been. And so essentially, what, what, what is built on that sort of starting point in terms of a philosophy or a worldview? That this is the way it is, this is the way it tends to be, and this is, this is how... Uh, the universe developed. There's a whole philosophy. It's the most dominant one probably in our country. <laughs> yes, yes. Macroevolution. Darwinian evolution. Dar Darwinian evolution is a doctrine. It's not a theory. It's a doctrine. And it's one they teach in the, in the public school system. So, um, why is there sickness and death according to Darwinian view? Well, because that's how life develops. Through the, uh, through, the, through the survival of the fittest. And so things get better and better and better, starting from simple to becoming more complex. So death is a means to improvement. 
Whereas the Christian worldview absolutely is so the opposite. Because of the revealed will of God, we understand is, no, it was once perfected and it was good, and man was very good, but something happened, something went wrong, which is the entrance of sin and fall and decay. So even though the created order reveals that God exists and man is accountable for what, how, what creation uh, reveals, unless we had special revelation, we wouldn't know why things are the way they are. And we would think this is the way it's supposed to be. So in order to interpret general revelation and understand it rightly, uh, we, we need special revelation. The second is to reveal God's moral will, uh, which sometimes we refer to as law. Um, scripture is necessary because while creation reveals the existence of God and his invisible attributes, um, and thus man is culpable, I mean, he's responsible for how he responds to that revelation, there is no ethical ought uh, in the created order. In other words, um, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. Cannot equal, this is the way it ought to be. Uh, this is, if I get a look, this is, they call this metaphysics in philosophy. And this is ethics and morality, ethics and morality. You can't derive a, an ought from an is. If this is the way it is, well, is that the way it should be? Well, this is the way I feel, this is the way it is, so therefore that's the way I ought to act. Or, um, in other words, just because something is this way, does that mean that the way it ought to be? And typically, when you talk about uh, natural law, people want to say, well, look, the, the created order does this. It's natural, it's part of the created order. Therefore, we as human beings, just being on a higher stage of evolution under the created order, could likewise, it's just more evolved animals, like also behave this, this way. In fact, that's how they explain uh, what we call simple behavior. It's just, animal be it's just another form of animal behavior. So we need, what does God require of us? What does he want from us? Are we to act what feels or it seems natural? Um, and so we need God's special revelation in order to know how to please him and to live according to his standards. <clears throat> only in God, this is key, only in God is there an, both an is and an ought. Only in God. God is holy. God is loving. God is justice. God is. So only in him does what is equal an ought. An ought. And so special revelation, um, a general revelation reveals that God is and because God is, man ought to respond to God, but you cannot look at the created order and then conclude, well, this is the way it is in the created order, therefore that's the way it ought to be, because the created order has fallen. Uh, any questions? I know that's kind of a heavy concept. And we can get a whole, that, the whole other category, it's called, it's called natural law, sort of derived from it. It actually comes from Aristotle, which in the, in the Middle Ages, uh, Thomas Aquinas sort of baptized uh, into the Christian faith, and since then the Christian faith has uh, largely adopted this idea. But it's an is-ought fallacy or a naturalistic fallacy. So we need God's revealed will because we would do a lot of things that come natural to us that are actually contrary to how he would have us to live. Alrighty, um, here's a little quote here from one theologian at the top of page three. Cursed creation is not normative. That is, it's not a, a standard of right and wrong. 
any more than fallen man is. We cannot look to nature and discover absolute standards of thought, absolute standards of law, or absolute standards of judgment. Even if cursed nature were normative, for the sake of argument, um, perverse men would misinterpret nature. So we need special revelation to interpret uh, general revelation. That is the created order. If Adam rebelled against the verbal revelation of God himself before he fell into sin, what should we expect from the sons of Adam now that nature is cursed and no longer uh, the same kind of revelation that God uh, that was in the garden? Revelation of God that was in the garden. So if even Adam had a perfect creation, responded to it wrongly, because, for example, you got the tree of knowledge, good and evil. Was Adam and Eve left to their own to figure out how they should interact with creation and interpret and understand the creation? No. God said, the day you eat of this, you shall surely die. So what's the first thing you're going to bring into question if you're the deceiver? That God really say. So the the beginning challenge of the Christian faith is that very thing. The, the 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 number one question throughout all of redemptive history is that one question: Did God really say? Is He really going to bring this about? Did God really say this? Did God really do this? Is He really going to fulfill His promises? And the beginning of all doubt, the beginning of all sin, the beginning of all um, sliding from the faith is is the the the. the, the Calling that into question, the challenging that very question: Did God s s say what He say? Did He do what He do? And He's going to keep. Is He going to keep His promises? And so, um, if Adam had this perfect revelation in the created order and perfect revelation in the in the, in the verbal revelation from God, if He responded wrongly with that, how much more would we, as sinners in a cursed creation, respond? to the, the, the created order now wrong. I mean, if he did wrong, even much more so we would. So we need God's uh, revealed will um, so that we know how to under, respond to him. As the psalmist wrote, he says, uh, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Okay, so then the third is to reveal God's plan of salvation. That is the gospel. There's no gospel, there's no plan of salvation, there's no redemption, there's no redemptive works of God in the created order. All there is in the created order is ultimately death and decay and corruption and chaos. Um, so we need the gospel. Scripture is necessary because while the invisible attributes of God have been made known through that which has been made, that is creation, since the foundation of the earth, the will of God and his plan of redemption is not found in the created order. That is natural revelation. Therefore, special revelation, the word of God, is necessary in written form in order to preserve it for all gener generations. So not only do we need it to, um, to understand God's moral will, but to understand God's plan of salvation. It has to come through his revelation, which is then codified or, or maintained in his written order. And then finally, to preserve the special revelation of God. While God has revealed himself, his will, and his work of redemption verbally and through various other means, ultimately in his son Jesus Christ, unless that revelation was preserved, it would be lost and oral tradition would soon be lost or distorted. It's kind of interesting, um, some of the works of the um, Institute of Creation Research. So there are some universal stories that sort of are found in cultures all over the world that we find in the Bible. Uh, one is like uh, the Noah, uh, the, uh, the story of the flood. 
Um, and you know, what, what, how do they account for a seven-day week? Why is a seven-day week a universal phenomenon? Why is marriage uh, a universal uh, phenomenon? Um, well, because they go back to the created order. The problem is, apart from God's special revelation, what has gotten distorted all over the place uh, is the, the, the story of the flood got distorted. The, the story of uh, or what marriage is supposed to be about has gotten distorted. And so um, special revelation is necessary because if, if we didn't have it written down, it would get uh, distorted by memory. Um, so, all right, so now so we need um, the, the written word of God for to understand his will, to understand his plan of salvation, uh, and to preserve that. So we're on uh, about three-quarters of the way down page three. We're looking at the authority of Scripture. Um, all right, do parents have an author- have authority? <laughs> yes, I hope so. Do uh, does the civil government, uh, presidents, uh, prime ministers, kings, uh, civil magistrates, do they have an authority? They have authority. Yes. Um, what about your 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 employer? By via contract. You know, you've, you signed a contract of some sort to work for your employer. Do they have an authority now, based on a contract that, yeah. okay, no, no, do they, are they infallible? Are they inerrant? Where does their authority come from? Does it come from themselves? Do they have just a, a, um, an inherent authority? All authority ultimately is derived from God. God and God alone has uh, authority in and of himself. All other authorities are derived from God. Um, so scripture alone, as God's uh, uh, revelation, is supremely, infallibly, and inerrantly authoritative because ultimately it is not derived from man or man's observation of the work of God. In other words, if scripture was just man's observation of the work of God, then its authority would be coming from man. Uh, God gave us his word through a means, that is, prophets, apostles, who wrote it down, but it's not ultimately derived from them, it's derived from God himself. So its authority doesn't come from the apostles, its authority didn't come from Moses, its authority didn't come from the prophets, but rather comes from God himself. And on here on, in the created order, or down here on earth, the only thing that has ultimately uh, 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 inherent authority is Scripture itself. So, um, so rather it is breathed out from God, Second uh, Timothy chapter three, and written by men who were moved by the Holy Spirit uh, in the way in which the wind moves a sailing ship. So, its authority is derived from God Himself. Uh, the Scriptures are authoritative since they are attested to by Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets functioned as delegated authorities. All, authority, or all earthly authorities are delegated. They're derived from God. And constantly affirmed uh, the authority of the one whom they represented. This is clearly indicated uh, in their use of the phrases such as, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, or the word of the Lord came to me saying. And we find in Jeremiah 29 and Jeremiah chapter 1. In this manner, the prophet of old is attesting to the divine authority of Scripture, declaring that the Scripture is the very word of the Lord, and all those who hear it, should honor it as such. Now, um, I don't want to get sidetracked on this, but does that mean just because some guy stands up and says, oh, hey, look, I'm a prophet of God, God said, da-da-da-da-da, and therefore you're supposed to obey him. 
When, if you read Deuteronomy 18, there's actually given a test, a litmus test, as to how to test a prophet. And if a, and a prophet didn't pass the test, not only were you not to listen to him, that was the end of his ministry. He was, he was to, be, uh, to be stoned. So it wasn't just any old guy can come along and say, hey, God told me we're all supposed to shave our heads and, uh, you know, and, and do such and such and such. But rather, it's attested to by the, the miraculous and God himself give us a standard of testing of, of, of testing prophets. The scriptures are also authoritative because they were attested to by the New Testament apostles. The reason why some books are not in, uh, so there are some apocryphal books, um, Old Testament, you might call them apocryphal books, are not in, we don't accept them in, in our canon of scripture. There's, they're never attested to by Jesus or the apostles. So, for example, Roman Catholicism, they have like Second uh, Maccabees and Ezra and so forth. They're not in, one, because they contradict Old Testament and New Testament texts. Secondly, they have historical errors. Third, uh, because uh, neither Jesus or the apostles approved of those books. Of the, uh, those books. So um, the scriptures are also authoritative because they're attested to by the New Testament apostles who are eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The New Testament uh, apostle functioned in a similar way to the Old Testament prophet. They were affirmed, uh, excuse me, um, they also affirmed the authority of the one whom they represented. And this is clearly indicated in two representative examples from the Apostle Paul. Um, can I get someone to read for me? 1 Corinthians 14.37. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it says, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Now, what's interesting, in, in liberal circles... They'll say, well, you know, the Apostle Paul, he never thought anything he was writing was the Bible or Scripture. And this is really something that later the church sort of enveloped, you know, the, the Apostle's writings and put them on the part of Scripture. Baloney. Baloney. The Apostle Paul tells the church, you're to recognize that what I'm writing to you is God's very commandment. Uh, can I get someone to read the second passage? And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when we, you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what, what really... For what really is the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. I mean, that can't get more emphatic than that. Paul, Paul, Paul says, look, what you receive from us is the very word of God. So in the same manner as the prophets before them, the apostles attested to the divine authority of scripture. In fact, the word apostle just means one who is sent forth with a commission. And is one who acts as a representative or you may think of as an ambassador. So in a sense, you could think of as Moses was acting like an apostle in the, in the Old Testament. It's sort of that same equivalency. Um, ultimately, the scriptures are authoritative since they were attested to by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Um, Jesus stands in sharp distinction to those, both of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles, for he spoke with a direct and very unmistakably divine authority. Um, if you, when you read through the Gospels, you don't find them quoting, as, as Rabbi Hillel said, or as Rabbi Gamaliel said, which was the practice of the day. Rabbi says, you know, in Matthew chapter 5, for example, he says, you have heard it said, you know, love your uh, uh, neighbors but hate your enemies, but I tell you. Say so what he's contradicting there is the tradition of the Pharisees throughout Matthew chapter 5 and upholding a right understanding of the law, uh, law of God. So he speaks um, with its authority and the right understanding of the Old Testament. He never, used the, uh, he never uses the phrase, thus saith the Lord. Rather, he says... And the Greek is amen, amen, uh, lego, amen. Uh, truly, truly, I say to you. Uh, and, there's, and this was a shock. People are like, whoa, nobody talks like this. 
in, in our day. In fact, he not only does talks to people like this, he talks to what? The created order like this. He speaks and the wind and the storms cease. And that's what's, and that's, I mean, the, the apostles were scared when the storm was going on, but when he spoke and the storms calmed, then they're really frightened. Because like, whoa, who is this who speaks with such authority? Um, uh, his manner of speaking leaves no doubt that he literally claimed to be God in the flesh. Jesus also affirmed the authority of God and the, of himself, and thus affirmed the divine authority of Scripture. Since Jesus does not claim to be uh, representing an authority, as were the prophets and apostles, but rather his own authority, well, how then did he fully demonstrate the validity of his authority? Um, and basically it is through... Uh, various miracles. I'm going to move on to perspicuity because we're going to be running short on time. So let's go to the middle of page uh, page five. So Jesus testified to his own authority for miracles. And this ties in with uh, Pastor Michael was talking about in the book of Acts. Remember he was talking about uh, miracles and are they normative and what is the purpose of miracles throughout the book of Acts is to establish the authority or the office of the apostle or the prophet. Well, Jesus establishes his authority not only in, in, in how he speaks, knowing what he speaks, but also in the miracles he does. All right, so in the middle of page five, perspicuity. Perspicuity, uh, which basically means the same thing as means clarity. And I, we can spend a lot more time on this. Um, although some portions of Scripture may be difficult to understand, and those who are untaught uh, and reject its authority, twist it to their own destruction. Um, Peter says there in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Paul writes the same way in, in, in all his writings, much of which is hard to understand, he says, but which the untaught and unstable twist to their own destruction. So even Peter says, whoa, man, some of the things, the way Paul writes, it's like, man, some of this stuff is like really, really, really hard to understand. But it's, who does um, Peter put the blame on for not understanding what Paul's writing? He says, well, Paul's not a very good teacher, and if he just was a little more clear, then no, no, the problem is, Scripture is clear. We are obscure. The problem is with us, not in the Bible. And those who are untaught and, uh, 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 will take the Bible and then twist it to suit their own ends. So, in terms of its basic message, okay, the, God's plan of salvation, the gospel. How does he want us to live? It is very, very clear. And so it is simple enough that a child can understand the basics of the Christian faith. It is that simple. And yet, it's also complex and deep enough to keep the theologian busy for his entire life. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I have like a couple thousand books in my library. And I'm, I'm, all I think about is the Bible and theology uh, like 24 hours a day. I'm thinking, 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 thinking. I'm studying, 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 studying. And for every answer that I find that, I, that resolves something, I have 10 more questions. <laughs> and so it's like this ever going. And then it's like I can go back 20 years and go, wow. I knew nothing back then. I thought I knew something, but I knew nothing. You know, you graduate from seminary, you get this degree, and you put it on your wallets, fancy Latin and all this nonsense. You think you know something. And like 20 years later, you're like, wow, such an idiot. You know, and, and then you're more, I'm absolutely amazed. Like, you can read through portions of the scriptures that you maybe heard all your entire life, and you're reading, they're like, oh, wow, I never saw that. And it's not, so it's simple enough to, uh, for a child to understand, and yet complex enough to keep us ever digging and seeking to understand the scriptures. So, when you have people say, well, look at how many denominations you've got, and people don't agree on this and that all the time, and da 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 time. If you look at the basics of the historic Christian faith, there's uniformity. 
And most of the disagreements has to do with nuance um, and sort of more peripheral understanding. So in terms of, if you're looking at uh, this way, this pen works, the center of the Christian faith, this way, and you have these concentric circles, and the basic cores of the Christian faith, of uh, the nature of God, uh, the gospel, and how we're to live, uh, law, these sort of central things, are really, really basic. But as you get into more other things, we might put eschatology out here, uh, ecclesiology here, you know, understanding of the church. As, as we get more and more out, more peripheral things that are not as total essential to the faith, there tends to be more disagreement. In fact, you can get some people the same view of the millennium, and they disagree with each other on some nuance of different things. But that's more peripheral. But those things that are basic and essential for how we're to live, and how we become more and more like Christ, which is the purpose of Scripture, to make us more like Christ, um, that's clear. That's abundantly clear. All right. Um, and then sufficiency. We're actually doing pretty good in time. Uh, sufficiency of Scripture. Um, finally, Scripture is materially sufficient. It is materially sufficient in that we do not need anything outside of itself to know and understand the Word of God. This is probably the number one challenge that is taking place, uh, I would say, in the church today in regarding the scriptures and in terms of what's going on in seminaries. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning uh, of this class, in the 1930s, um, seminaries are going right down the drain. They're all turning over to higher critical liberalism, denying the inerrancy and fallibility of scripture, denying the possibility of the miraculous, denying... And so the, the, the church and the gospel is coming more of just a sort of a social program. And um, that was that sort of old school, higher critical liberalism. You know, miracles can't happen. That's, a, that's what they start with a presupposition. Therefore, the goal is when you go to the Bible is to remove all the myths. And what we have left is what we're, they're going to call the Christian faith. And they actually think they're defending the Christian faith. Making it by making it more palatable to the world. Well, that's so, sort of, you know, there's, there's still those old school liberals are there, but then they moved into a sort of a semi liberalism, which was uh, what they call neo orthodox, but it's really neoliberalism, which was that the Bible becomes the Word of God when you encounter it. Um, well, there's a newer sort of neoliberalism which says, it's, it, it, it speaks on one side of its mouth. It says, yeah, we, we uphold the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. And it's the breathed out word of God. But what, out of the other side of their mouth, what they say is, but it's not sufficient to understand it within itself, and it's not sufficient for the, for the Christian life. And so they affirm one, but with the other hand, just take it away. So what then it becomes is, you can only understand the Bible if you have all these other things, for which is going to form sort of the lens through which we're now going to interpret and understand the Bible. It is so common. Take your average so-called conservative seminary. You can name one, any of them. If I go and look into what they're teaching in terms of hermeneutics, it's there. It is really, really, really common. I'll give you an example. Um, in 1979, a guy named uh, Paul Seeley in the Westminster Theological Journal, it's a two-part article. It's called the meaning of the article is called the meaning of Rakia in Genesis chapter one. Rakia is the firmament. Okay. So what he asserts basically is, if you read extra biblical accounts of creation, 
you find is essentially they believe the world was like a snow globe. You know, snow globes are it's a half round thing and it's got water in it, it's got a little snow and you shake it up and then the, the snow floats around. That was their view of the universe. Okay, if you look outside the Bible. Okay, the Bible, this isn't a little mantra that they have. The Bible's not a science textbook. Therefore, it can be scientifically wrong, but theologically correct. Its purpose is to teach theology, not science. Therefore, we, in, we uphold that it's inerrant and infallible in its purpose, which is theology, but it can be flawed in its science and what it teaches about the created order. Okay. This is asserted in so-called conservative seminaries. This is extremely common. And so what he goes on to say is, Moses' view of the universe, as he taught it in, 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 in Genesis, as the universe was like that snow globe. And, and, that's, and this is the Westminster Theological Journal coming out of Westminster Seminary. That, that is shocking. Okay, This is, I mean, now what happens is, you start going, well, the flood. Um, what keeps you from, well, from going to the resurrection? Well, they thought, you know, they observed. This is what, how they perceived it, because it was fitting within within their their worldview, the primitive worldview of the time. But we, as modern, enlightened, twenty first century uh, Christians, know better. And so they begin to truncate the sufficiency of Scripture to just it can keep you out of hell. That's about what it comes down to. Come down to it. this is extremely extremely common. So, um, in contrary to that, now when we think of sufficiency of Scripture, we usually, in terms of as Protestants, we think about Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism says you have to have three things. You have to have the written word of God. You have to have tradition passed down from the, from, uh, uh, from the apostles, which is another form of revelation. And then third, you have to have uh, the magisterium, that is the Pope, in order to interpret it. So that's Roman Catholics. Three parts that they deny what we call sola scriptura. Uh, the scripture alone is, is the, the alone, the infallible, and their uh, ultimate authority for, all, for doctrine and life. That's the Roman Catholic position. So what Protestants have done now is, yeah, they're not upholding Roman Catholic tradition, but they have now set up another standard, another authority, another lens to which they're going to interpret the Bible. And this, every time I turn around, I read some newspaper article, I mean a, a magazine on it, a journal article, I see this all uh, the time. So, um, where am I at? Uh, so, scriptures, and in contrast to that, scriptures within itself, and this is a basic fundamental hermeneutic is to interpret scripture within itself you can you can even define you can even determine the meaning of words even if it only appears once in the context of a text itself you ever heard of uh what's that stone the um rosetta stone here's this completely dead language written on this stone and yet they're able to figure out everything that's said on that rosetta stone without a lexicon without anything outside of of that that stone. If you can do that with this pagan document, you want to call it that, certainly you can do this with scripture because you can figure out um, within the text itself what it means in its context and its broader context. Anyway, let's, let's move on. So we do not need the traditions of the Pharisees, uh, which is then codified in the 2nd century AD uh, in the Midrash, the Talmud, uh, which is the tradition of the, of the rabbis, we don't need the secret teaching of the Gnostics. One of the first things that the early church went up against is they were saying that, that there were Gnostics who were saying, look, not all the revelation of Jesus is given, given in, in the Bible and from the apostles. You need to come to us because we have the secret information. And this is the way scholars can sound sometimes. They can make 
the average Christian think that, wow, I, you know, I'm not a scholar. I don't have a PhD in Hebrew and Greek, and I, you know, I can't understand. Man, what what can I know? How can I have any uh, reliance on, on understanding of the scriptures? Because they have the secret knowledge. The secret knowledge for them is, well, this archaeological find, or if you read this in light of Plato, or if you read this in light of some other contemporary document of the time, or of Josephus, or something else like that, then you can understand what it really means. But because you're not a scholar and you don't have access to these libraries, well, sorry, you know, you're, you're out of luck. You know, you really can't understand the Bible. So these are the, and they don't state that blatantly, but this is actually what they're teaching. We do not need pagan creation accounts to understand the first three chapters of Genesis. We do not need the suzerain treaties of pagan dynasties to understand the covenants of the Bible. Nor do we need extra biblical flood stories to understand the Bible's account of Noah and the flood. Nor do we need ancient Near East hero myths to un interpret the passages concerning the relationship between Jonathan and David. Um, to insist that we cannot rightly understand the scriptures, apart from any of these things, is to deny the sufficiency of scripture and to assert that only a special class of people who have access to such resources can truly know God and understand his will. So many so-called scholars are really the new Gnostics of the day in their understanding of Scripture. Furthermore, to insist that one must interpret the Bible in light of extra-biblical documents asserts that God has not given his people everything they need to know him and understand his revealed will, and that only the mystic with a special knowledge or the specialized scholar can truly understand the Bible. And i got to finish up. But this is what um, Paul says in 2 Timothy. You, however, continue the things that you have learned and became convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and from your childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to, to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, let's, let's skip over the next page, verse 16 and 17. And he's, this one goes on to say, All scripture is inspired of God and a prophet for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Peter also says that God has given us all things pertaining uh, to life. Okay, it's a quarter till, so I'm going to stop it now. Um, but you can go ahead and read the rest of it in my sort of building. The rest of it builds on that particular text. Is why It only not only tells us that God has given us um, his infallible, inerrant word, the word of God, but also, it, 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 um, the implications of it is it's also sufficient. That what Timothy needed uh, to hold on to was that which he had from his childhood. That is, he, and what he had was the Old Testament, which was then interpreted in light of the gospel and, and the re re revelation of Jesus Christ. Are there any questions? I've done most of the talking, I know. Um, any questions about any of this? I have a, I think I hear this all the time, and I think you probably hear it, is there are people who say, well, a couple of things. Um, uh, because the Bible says so. Um, <laughs> my answer to that is from the Bible. My answer to everything is going to be from the Bible. Because the Bible says, says, says so. Okay, um, I'm going to bake a chocolate cake. Okay, um, is the Bible going to tell me how to do make a chocolate cake? No, it'll give me the ethical. No, it'll give me the ethical principles. It'll give me the ethical principles by which I ought to um, run a bakery. 
it'll give me the heart motivation uh, that I did, you know, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, do it all for the glory of God. So it's not going to tell me how to bake a chocolate cake. But it, and so it's, it's, that's not, because that's not part of it. It's not for doing every single little thing, how to build a house and so forth. But it gives me the, the worldview and the lens through which I'm going to understand all things. Now, to get back to answer your question, because the Bible itself says you're to be part of the church. Because the Bible itself says we need to learn from others. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm Joe Theologian, and I read books all the time. So why do I need to go to church and listen to a sermon? Because I deceive myself. Because I deceive, I'm a sinner, you know? Um, it, it's, it's amazing. I, I, I used to weigh like 270 pounds. I was, uh, uh, and I never, when I would look in the mirror, I never saw how, how much I weighed. Because you deceive. And then I would, when I would look at a, a photograph of myself, I'm like, oh my goodness. And I see pictures, I'm like, oh my goodness. And I think to myself, why didn't I, why didn't I see that before? I was working on the, I used to work, I, I've been working various, for various federal law enforcement agencies. We deceive ourselves. It's, a, it's part of our, our sinful nature. We need an objective voice who tells us things. God has given gifts to people in, in the church for that particular person. So I not only listen to myself, my own reading, I need to listen to others. I need to listen to those who came before me, old dead saints, uh, as well as as contemporaries um, because um, well Ecclesiastes talks about if a man falls down a man who is alone he falls down who is there to help him up but two uh, two who are together we want you to fall the other one help them get back up and playing that towards a sinful nature when I hear someone else come and tell me like Nathan did to David and he gives him this story of there was a man who had this uh, lamb and he loved this lamb as if it was his own child and then his neighbor had all uh, um and then uh, he had a whole bunch of, of, of lambs. And when he had someone come to stay with him, he went, rather than sacrifice one of his own for the meal, he went and took his neighbors, that, that took his lamb that was, it was beloved by him. And David says, oh, that man ought to die. And then Nathan says, thou art the man. It's like, whoa. We need, and so David for a whole year is, has not repented and confessed his sin until that, until that particular point. And that's when he writes Psalm 51. Reason why is, I will deceive myself. I will deceive myself with the Bible even. I, I will twist it. I will f- try to get around it to, to suit my needs. But when I got someone else who's telling me, no, you're wrong, and here's the reason why, and he's doing it from the scriptures, then I get convicted. Especially when I have, he's telling me I'm wrong, he's telling me I'm wrong, she's telling me I'm wrong, he's 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 telling me I'm wrong, she's telling me, she's telling me, she's telling me, he's telling me, he's telling me. Guess, man, all these people are telling me wrong. You know what? Mm, odds are I'm probably wrong if these people are all in a universal agreement. And so I listen to my elders. I got elders in the church. I listen to those who know me best, who are closest to me, uh, Nan's brother-in-law. And if they come and tell me, Eric, you're blowing it, I listen. I listen to them. And so reason why is because we, believe it or not, we need each other. Um, the body of Christ you know, in First Corinthians chapter 12, there's different parts of the body. And one part of the body cannot say to the other, the hand cannot say to the eye, the eye cannot say to the nose, I'm no need of you. And so part of, you know, Second Timothy chapter 3, our, our text for the day is, what it's profitable for is for correction, for rebuke, for training in righteousness, is we get that from someone else, not just from our own reading. And predominantly throughout the history, until the invention of the, the printing press, and then a printing press that could afford uh, uh, affordable Bibles. The majority of the way in which people heard the, had the Word of God was someone read it. 
Um, there was one Bible from the entire synagogue, one copy of the Torah. They would open it up, and then they would read it, and then the people there would repeat it back, and they would memorize it. That's how they had it. Um, so what, there was never been this idea of just me, myself, and, and, and my Bible. So um, what happens with me, myself, and just the Bible, that turns into a cult. That's, I mean, that's essentially how cults go. Anyway, um, we're out of time. Thank you for your question. Uh, and let's uh, uh, close. Would you close, please? Okay. Uh, Father, thank you, Lord, for today. We just uh, thank you for Eric and sharing his uh, vast knowledge, Lord, of why the Bible is uh, so inherent, so vital, so important to our lives. And we just pray that as uh, uh, Christians, Lord, that we would uh, take the Bible to heart and have a desire to learn about it and to know it. So that we can please you. We just pray for the service to come, that you bless the time. In Christ's name, pray. Amen.